Hello, everybody. My name is Trevor Chambers. I'm the host of Meet the Masters with Old Rowley Financial Group. Today is March 21st, 2020. I marked that date because the world is, uh, as always, a bit nutty, but uh, safe to say it's uh, very interesting, very, very nutty today. We've got COVID-19 going on, negative valued oil. Uh, the Kim Jong-un uh, from Korea may be dying. I don't know. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, most tragically, there is no baseball going on. So with that backdrop, I thought uh, no better time to reach out to one of the one of the firms, uh, one of our firm's favorite voices in the world of uh, investing, Mr. Bill O'Grady. Welcome, Bill O'Grady. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. Excellent. I'm just going to give a brief little background on you. Uh, Bill is the chief marketing strategist for Confluence Investment Management based in St. Louis. In that role, Mr. O'Grady performs market, economic, and geopolitical research for the firm and is a member of the investment committee for the asset allocation strategies and international equity strategies. Bill also co-manages uh, Confluence's global hard asset portfolio, which focuses on tangible commodities investments. Uh, these strategies all rely on top-down evaluations in geopolitical environment, the fundamental macro, economic trends, and technical patterns in, in the target markets. Additionally, Bill writes numerous reports for the firm, which can be found in the news uh, research and news section of the site. So uh, welcome to uh, Meet the Masters, Bill. Um, I just wanted to, can you give a brief history of uh, you and how you ended up in Confluence and in this world of uh, value investing and long-term investing? Oh, well, um, I, I started in financial services uh, in 1986 uh, with a newly minted master's degree in economics from uh, uh, St. Louis University with a little uh, commodity brokerage called Clayton Brokerage of St. Louis. Uh, they were kind of an infamous firm. Um, if you Google uh, Billionaire Boys Club, uh, their name pops up. Uh, oh, cool. They, they were also knee-deep into the uh, Hunt Brothers uh, silver corner uh, in the early 80s. So they they were a rather infamous firm, as I like to tell people. I I saw just about every dirty trick that you could do in, in the financial markets while I worked there, and I was only there about nine months. So Wow, I didn't know this. This is interesting. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's where I started. I was there uh, from March until December of, of uh, 1986. The firm got bought then, and uh, I got my first taste of um, being, being uh, laid off due to a buyout and then uh, went from one end of the spectrum to the other end. I uh, went to work for a commercial bank, a, a bank in Missouri called um, Mercantile Bank, which at the time was the largest bank in, in the state. Uh, it had about $5 billion in assets, which now wouldn't even qualify you as a small cap in that space. Um, but it was a different time, and I was their international economist and uh, did country risk analysis for their international lending activities. Um, I had a front row seat to the um, uh, great sell-off of uh, uh, Latin American bank debt. Um, I was, uh, at the time, um, I was very good at Lotus, uh, and, and of course, when you say that to anyone yeah. uh, born after 1990, they look at you like, what are you talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I was so good at it, I actually used to teach it at night, but oh, cool. uh, none of my bosses knew how to use it, so they drug me into these negotiating sessions where I would, uh, I managed to jerry-rig a old compact um, com- Portable computer, which hilariously is a uh, um, looks like a portable sewing machine, um, right, right, and uh, and was then managed to figure out how to hook a, a monitor uh, away from me to a table, so the executives around the table could see that well, if we sold off Chile at eighty cents on the dollar, what would that do to the portfolio? And right. I. Uh, uh, I was there uh, for about two and a half years, and the last three or four months being part of this group that was selling off our exposure. And I remember telling my wife in the summer of '89 that there, they, no way they were going to need me much longer because our, 
our loan book went from like 300 million to about seven. <laughs> Hilariously enough, the seven million that remained was Yugoslavian debt. And, um, I remember going into my boss and explaining to him, you know, how, uh, insecure Yugoslavia was. And his response was the communists always pay back. <laughs> and of course, that ended up being the one leg of that that fully defaulted. But uh, right, of course. Uh, as, as I started to see the end of the road where I was, out of the blue, I got a call from A.G. Edwards, and they uh, there was a, a man there by the name of uh, Gary Thayer who was um, doing energy and uh, fixed income and. Um, foreign exchange uh, futures analysis for them, and he wanted to join uh, the economics group. And so they had an opening, and uh, Lee Reed, who was the head of that department, was an old Clayton brokerage alumna, and so uh, he kind of filled that department with uh, analysts from Clayton Brokerage because although the the firm had a bad reputation in terms of how it acted, his research was actually pretty good. And oh, wow. so I got hired in September 1st, uh, 1989, in the, Ed, in the Edwards Futures Department. And um, by about November, my whole department back at Mercantile had uh, pretty much been obliterated. So um, I, I uh, kind of always assumed that if you went into financial services, that things always blow up. Um, but I ended up at H.E. Edwards from 1989 uh, into uh, the, or toward the end of 2008 uh, and um, did a number of things for A.G. Edwards. I was in the futures department for about 15 years. Half of those I was director of research, um, wrote uh, a lot. Uh, you know, where I got into geopolitics was I'd been at, at Edwards for a, a little less than a year when Saddam Hussein invaded uh, Kuwait. And, of course, me being the oil analyst, I uh, I, I was suddenly uh, thrust into the spotlight. Um, and it, it was pretty interesting. Uh, the uh, I remember thinking about it as I went through it, you know, that you can do all the supply and demand analysis you want on, on oil, but geopolitics plays a huge role. And I, I kind of really started working hard on learning geopolitics at that point. And uh, 15 years later, uh, my daily energy comment was usually either the most read or second most read report in the A.G. Edwards system because of the geopolitical work I was doing. And in 2005, the firm decided that it was time for me to learn equities, so they moved me to the market analysis department um, of A.G. Edwards that was run by the legendary Al Goldman. And uh, Al taught me stocks, and um, while I was there, uh, people were missing the geopolitical analysis, and so I started writing a weekly geopolitical report uh, in 2006 and uh, have continued that for the past 14 years. So... Um, about the time of the merger when Wachovia Bank bought uh, A.G. Edwards, uh, a group of us uh, that had been on the Investment Strategy Committee had kind of came to the conclusion that it was if there was ever a time to jump, uh, that was the time. And yeah. um, so we, we uh, put together a little bit of capital and a business plan, and, and a group of us uh, set sail on our own. And, of course, uh, we set sail into, you know, a Category 5 financial crisis. Yeah, and, uh, time, time, time was fabulous. We, we joked about it at the time. You know, we're all sitting around in this really dumpy space that we had. Um, we had one Bloomberg, and everybody else was getting prices, market information off everything we could find for free and uh, laughing at, at, like, whose idea was this again? Yeah. Um, but it, it's all turned out quite well. Um, you know, we, we've been in existence uh, since uh, we took our first dollar of assets in May of 2008. And uh, we're, we're around $9 billion in assets under management or uh, un, under our direction now. And, and um, 
it's it's uh it's been fun um yeah and exciting so that's that's kind of me that's 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 that is very uh, great entrepreneurial story right there i think it's uh always love to hear those stories well if you don't mind i'm going to just jump right into uh to a topic that um i read about uh through i've read some some of the writings about it and that's optimization and i just think it resonates um especially with what's currently going on. So can you talk to us about what optimization is, kind of its definition, and then just kind of run through the impacts um, as you see it? Well, the, the key thing about optimization is to try to get the most you can out of the circumstances that you find yourself in. Well said. And, and where, where this gets people uh, in trouble is when they assume that the circumstances they're in are eternal. Uh, I'll give you a, a real um, example from my own life. When when I uh, was in high school and college back in the 70s, I worked for a retailer. Uh, some of your listeners might remember uh, a store by the name of TG&Y. They were a uh, five-and-dime uh, that originated out of Oklahoma that uh, – um, had evolved into a a uh, larger store format similar to a Target or or of venture stores of happy memory um, or a Walmart or a Kmart uh, and they um, so I, I started in high school uh, working on the shipping dock and then eventually worked in the hardware department and when I graduated from college they offered me a management position. So I, I did that for a couple of years and learned a lot about retailing. But, but where this story refers to optimization, when I worked in retailing in the 70s, if you did just-in-time inventories, you would have been considered a bleeding idiot. Because right. Inflation was high, and the, the thing that you had that went up in value the fastest was your inventory. So you were taught as a young retail manager to hold as much inventory as your shelves could handle. Um, we used to have 14 and 16 inch peg hooks so we could load up a, uh, a department with, with stuff and, um, no one really paid attention to what inventory that you had in the store. We had no inventory tracking because, frankly, it always went up in value, and who cared? Mm-hmm. And then when you saw inflation drop uh, in the early 1980s, stores like TG&Y were caught completely flat-footed because suddenly now it made sense to have the leanest amount of inventory you possibly could uh to know exactly uh what you you had um and where it was and frankly teaching why was unable to adapt and went out of business about the middle of the 1980s um so what happened? Well, when you think something's going to last forever and you structure yourself around it, you become efficient, but you become brittle. In other words, uh, one of the things that we have been telling people for the past few years is that globalization was a great risk. Yeah. That we were seeing a rise in populism and that one of the uh, pushbacks that populists were going to, to, to do was against globalization. Glo- globalization would include not just trade in stuff, but trade in services, trade in ideas, and trade in people. Uh, immigration would, would become uh, uh, less supported. And I can tell you when either myself or members of, of our team go out and give this speech, uh, it was not uncommon to get a really strong pushback um, from members of the audience, and most of the time it was members of the audience that were the most educated and the most wealthy. Right. Because they had made their money in a globalized world and, frankly, could not imagine it being any different. And so one of the dangers that managers face uh 
either of companies or money managers is to look at your world and say, this is the best way to do things and it will always be the best way to do things. Instead, you should look at it from the point of view of this is the best way to do things now, but if these factors change, it may no longer be the best way to do things. And uh, it, it, we have... Uh, it's always important to know that what we deem to be optimal today may turn out to be considered far suboptimal tomorrow. So I'll, I'll give you one quick example. Um, we have made our medical supply chains uh, literally across the world. I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was uh, describing a ventilator company trying to boost its production of ventilators. and it turned out they sourced uh, 60 parts from 14 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, in a world where countries may see their production drop because of, of, of the pandemic, that went from being a, an optimal way of managing your business to uh, clearly a, a big problem. And what I suspect is going to, one of the factors that's going to come out of this pandemic is that we are going to see a dramatic shortening of medical supply chains, which in terms of cost will probably be less efficient. We're going to have more expensive workers putting together simple things, but we're going to believe that going forward, it's going to be better to have that stuff made here than it is to uh, have it made more cheaply abroad. Yeah. And what do you think, not to digress too much, but it kind of smells like inflation to me, at least in certain areas. It, it will. Um, but the, the inflation is, is a really tricky thing. Um, there's a book I'm just finishing up uh, by Robert Schiller called Narrative Economics. And um, Schiller's argument is, is that, yes, Data numbers do matter, but but human beings are basically storytelling animals. Um, we tell ourselves narratives uh, because that's how we remember them. That that's, that's how we learn. That's how we come to understand them. So uh, you know, when when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't talk to us in terms of theology. He talked to us in terms of parables, right. and that's because that's just kind of the way we're built. We, we remember stories, and we tell stories about stuff. And for inflation to become a serious problem, an inflation narrative needs to develop around it. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the thing to remember about inflation narratives. Uh, inflation expectations are the key to the narrative. And the generation that remembers inflation the best, you know, my generation, the baby boom generation, is steadily departing, you know, this earthly pale. And um, if you look at the average 40-year-old, their adult experience of inflation is about 2.3%. Mine is about Mm -hmm. 3.7%. Inflation is going to come, but it's probably going to come a lot slower than my generation expects it will. Uh, On the other hand, for the millennial and Gen X, it's going to be a shock because they've never seen it. Yep. Uh, and it, 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 these, these changes tend to come like tipping points. Um, one of the things I used to do is when I'd go out and give talks, I would, I would tell uh, clients that I got good news and I got bad news. The bad news is there's, there's going to be a, a bond bear market at some point. And then you would see a scene very similar to the that scene in Airplane where the stewardess comes out and says, I want everyone to assume the crash position. And if you've never Googled that. Uh, yeah, that's hilarious. It, it's, a, it's a good two or three minute waste of yeah. time. I will integrate that link into this uh, when we present this uh, blog. Yeah, absolutely. Great idea. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then the second thing I would tell them is the good news is, is that by the time this bound bear market becomes a real problem, you'll all be dead. Yeah. Um, and that's because it can't happen as long as people who think inflation is right around the corner uh, are still around. Uh, yep. You know, the reason the 70s inflation occurred was the people in power then, which was the 
Depression generation and the early post-Depression generation had experienced deflation, and they really didn't think inflation could ever really take hold. And you read the contemporary economists in in the late 60s and early 70s, they were absolutely befuddled by the inflation that that occurred. Uh, They didn't understand where it came from, and they kept misapplying policies to address it because that generation was terrified of unemployment and was willing to tolerate higher inflation uh, to cope with it. Uh, The baby boom generation, on the other hand, is just the opposite. They are willing to tolerate unemployment to keep inflation down. Uh, but the baby boom generation is is fading. Uh, you know, we're we're aging pretty quickly, and uh, uh, and the influence of of the baby boom generation will steadily wane over time. Uh, it'll still probably take about ten years for it, for it to to really make an effect. But by you know into the 2030s and 2040s, I suspect that uh, people will be complaining about. Uh, you know, inflation and where it came from. And that's all right on time with millennials, you know, who are now in their late 20s and early 30s. They're going to have start having, get married, having babies, buying houses. It's already happened. So that, that's going to... That's right. Be, well, yeah. one of the things I like to point out is that, you know, the, the, the first, the, the oldest millennial was born in 1981. So let's, let's look at that millennial's history. You know, when that millennial was, was 17, you had the LTCM financial crisis, which a lot of people don't remember. I'm sure very few 17-year-olds remember it, but it was kind of our first look at what the abyss would look like. Um, and then we had the tech crash two years later. And then uh, eight years after that, you had the great financial crisis. And now 12 years after that, you're having the great pandemic. Um, you know, the millennial generation is, is about as scarred as, uh, as the depression generation was, the silent generation. Um, you know, because they've lived through all these financial crises and, uh, it would make a lot of sense. It's going to be very difficult to scare them by telling them inflation is going to be 3% a year. Uh, you know, they'll look at that like, oh well, so what? Uh, that might not be the worst thing. Um, whereas you tell the baby boomers that, and it's like if it's three today, it's twelve tomorrow. Right. Yep. Yeah. But there's hope in the millennials too. I mean, they could. I mean, because they are going to unleash a lot of spending, just from just because that's where they're at in their trend line in their lives. Could they help us lead us back into recovery from this thing? Uh, well, you should. You would hope. Um, the recovery will come, uh, right. you know, there, there is, uh, cause, cause it always does. And, right. and, uh, and, and we are seeing, you know, a lot of the lessons that were learned, uh, both in the depression and in 2008, uh, have clearly sunk in, um, you know, the, the actions of the federal reserve, uh, have been nothing short of historic, but even, you know, the rapid, passage of the um, of three stimulus bills uh, in a probably one of the most partisan congresses we've had in over a hundred years is is nothing short of of astonishing uh, yeah and and so uh, there's a downside to all this but uh, but it it's it's a longer term downside. Um, it's it's not a uh, uh, it's not a, a cardiac arrest type event like we had in 2008 or like we had in 1930. Right. Well, yeah, these things can tend to move like a glacier sometimes. But um, well, let's let's move to another topic. The uh, November elections are. We'll be here before we know it. How does that play out? Well, I to kind of frame this, I, I my current boss is our CEO and CIO, Mark Keller. Uh, in 1998, 
Mark Keller uh, was had just been appointed the head of the investment strategy committee at AG Edwards, and the previous head of that committee, um, who will go unnamed, uh, really strongly disliked me. Um, and so he, I can't imagine that, Bill. I can't imagine that. <laughs> well, no, really. I mean, you're a nice guy. You know what I mean? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, but uh, I. Uh, I have a reputation of not suffering fools well, and I have to say, yeah. when I was in my 30s and 40s, I was uh, I, I had a particularly hard edge. Looking back on it, I can understand why he he acted the way he did. But I got it. Um, I got it. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but when when Mark, I'm not going to cross you. I'm not going to cross you in an hour. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, when when Mark took over the committee, one of the first things he did was put me on it, and. Um, Shortly after I joined the committee, he took me aside and took me out to lunch. He said, I, I have a particular project I want you to take on for the investment strategy committee. And I said, well, what is it? He goes, I want you to cover politics. And I said, well, okay, well, I'm really honored. He said, well, don't be. He said, no one else wanted to do it. Um, so it's sort of like being the new person on the committee and getting stuck right. with, you know, doing, doing the fundraiser for the year. Baptism uh, by fire. Yeah. So, I, I came about it, uh, and, I, and I looked at it and said, okay, well, how should I do this? And the first, you know, tenant I came at, or the first uh, postulate that I, I had, is that I, I should be completely, um, uh, you know, nonpartisan um, in this. In fact, I have to, you know, I, I have to do two things. One is... I need to figure out who's going to win. And number two, what are they going to do when they take office? And anything else that I add to this will end up being counterproductive. And so that's how I go about it. I, I, uh, um, I, I don't, uh, uh, you know, as I tell people, if you can figure out my political leanings from my writings, I have failed. And uh, I work really, really hard at uh, sticking to this is what they did. This is what they said they were going to do. This is how it worked out. Yeah. Um, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, who's going to win, uh, I use a combination of, of polling and, and the decision markets for that. Um, I have found the decision markets to be pretty good. Uh, they're not perfect either. No, you know, predicting the future is hard, but I use a combination of the two. Um, and um, use that to kind of scope uh, how it's going to win. Uh, for presidential elections, I always remind people that the popular vote really doesn't matter, that the popular vote is there to elect state electors, and so you have to really focus on the Electoral College. Um, and then when you look at the Electoral College, what you find out is that roughly 200 votes per side um, is kind of in the bag, uh, and you're really talking about eight to ten states that that sway the uh, sway the election. And so we we do spend a lot of time looking at state economic data for those states and and polling data for those states and what the decision markets are telling us about those states. And uh, um, kind of in general, um, this is. There are three things I'm watching with this election. Uh, the first is obviously the economy. Um, a, an incumbent, a president in office has not uh, won re-election um, in, in, a, in, a, in the same year that, when you had a recession in the election year or the, or the year previous. Um, the uh, uh, recessions are, are just uh, are just deadly. And um, uh, the last president to win uh, an election in a recession year was was Calvin Coolidge. Um, so it's not impossible, but it's rare. Uh, right. You know, the, the the two classic cases um, would would be George H. W. Bush and and um, uh, and, and Jimmy Carter. Uh, so this recession comes at a very inopportune time for, for the president. Now, this one is different because you, you can't blame this recession on, you know, this was clearly an exogenous event. And, uh, 
you know, the voters may end up giving uh, the president some some uh, a bit of a pass on uh, uh, because this one really was not his fault. Uh, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, you can you can argue all day long about the reaction to it, but if you look at how the whole world has reacted to the pandemic, um, no one has has been absolutely perfect. Uh, everybody has had areas where you 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 wish you'd have done something different, number one. And number two, it's always important to remember that politics is the art of the possible. Uh, there may be things that you would like to do, but it's just simply not politically possible. Um, and if you try it, 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 you just know it won't work. Uh, the, the second thing um, that we'll be watching for uh, is the impact of social media. Um, social media has... If, if you look through history, changes in media uh, matter a lot. Uh, the Reformation probably doesn't occur without uh, the printing press. Um, you know, uh, Franklin Roosevelt probably doesn't get four terms in office without radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Richard Nixon probably wins in 1960 if it hadn't been for televised debates. So, uh, you know, media does matter a lot, and social media has has dramatically undermined the uh, power of of, uh, of political parties. Um, it's allowed uh, candidates to to raise money um, in all sorts of ways that they couldn't do before from people who didn't usually matter before. Uh, you know, just pulling in money from uh, wealthy people, uh, you can run a campaign without it. Yeah. And uh, that changes it. Plus, it allows you to put your message out um, without going through the expense of television and radio advertising. Uh, so it, it has been a complete game changer. And um, to some extent, Barack Obama was better at it in 2008 than John McCain. And, um, you can make a really good case that uh, uh, Don, Donald Trump was much better at it than Hillary Clinton was in 2016. Mm-hmm. And then the third element that I'm watching, uh, which relates to this, is the fact that social media has made it much easier for foreign governments to affect our elections. Um, and uh, it, it it's not the foreign government's to uh, affect our elections. Yeah. Hello? You still yeah, there. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Uh, no, I'll, I'll it broke up a little bit. <laughs> okay, I'll repeat that. It's yes, not please. the foreign governments uh, haven't uh, tried to affect our elections before. They have. Uh, it's just now they have a much more effective tool available to them. And one of the things we could see is something of a free-for-all uh, where one country may prefer... Uh, Biden and another country may prefer uh, uh, Trump, and they'll work across purposes um, because uh, you know when you're the when you're the you're the hedgeman when you're the the global superpower uh, shaping how the election goes matters a lot. What we tend to find um, when you have an incumbent. Uh, Republican lose to a, an, an incoming Democrat is equities don't handle it well for about six months. Um, and then usually about by the end of the second year after the election year, uh, you can't tell the difference. So mm-hmm. it's possible that a Biden win would be taken as a, as a modest negative for equities. Uh, we would view it as a buying opportunity. Mm-hmm. Certainly, just to kind of riff on social media, this is really the first social media pandemic. And it's just uh, amazing to watch it play out on these platforms. Um, I don't know whether it's doing any more good than, you know, more harm, but it's certainly, you know, my kids are 16 and 13, so they're right in the teeth of this thing. And it's amazing to uh, parent into it and to watch it, um, watch this particular crisis play out. Um, let's talk about active versus passive. 
and especially in times like these. What's your thoughts on that? The way you should think about active and passive really circles back to that whole optimization argument. We have had 40 years where um, you have had an environment that is uh, positive or supportive for capital owners. Um, you know, people forget, but it, it used to be illegal for companies to buy back their own stock. Um, it it uh, mm. uh, we, we had a we had regulations in place that forced employers to keep uh, unnecessary employees on the payroll. Uh, practice was known as vetting. and it wasn't completely widespread. But one of the best examples I like to give about this is that um, if you look at uh, railroads prior to the the Steggers Act, uh, which passed in the late seventies. Uh, freight trains always had cabooses, and the caboose was there as a rolling office for the conductor and, and his staff. Uh, by the 60s, it was and 70s, communications had improved to the point where the caboose was unnecessary. But union rules required the railroads to maintain those jobs, and thus. Uh, the caboose, and I suspect most of the time the people in the caboose would sit there and read magazines and hang out and shoot the breeze mm-hmm. because they had really nothing to do. Um, and then after the Steggers Act, suddenly you'd see rail yards full of cabooses. I grew up in Kansas City, and we, it's a bit of a railroad hub, and we would have these enormous rail yards, and you would just see row after row after row of unused cabooses, which eventually became restaurants or, or uh, um, shops. I mean, the local town I live in has a, has a caboose that's, a, that's been converted into a gift shop. And, right, right. Um, you know, so you've had four decades where you've had um, a Federal Reserve that has uh, clearly taken steps to, to support uh, the financial markets. You've had disinflation. Uh, you have seen uh, margins steadily rise as capital uh, earns uh, a greater share of income compared to labor. And in that kind of environment, uh, it lifts all stocks. And so being a passive investor, frankly, isn't necessarily a bad idea. Um, you know, because it, it's sort of like uh, the whole uh, the tide is lifting all the boats, and so it kind of doesn't matter which boat you're in. Yeah, I heard a colleague they'll say of yours uh, say, "Don't fight the Fed." Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, it makes sense, and, right? And so and, all these people that are invite, you know they're they're obviously investing in uh, you know the Vanguard, you know global growth fund or whatever, or you know fill in the blank. They feel safe. That's good. It keeps going. I say, why fight the Fed? But there's a contrary. There's another side of this thing, and it's of active management, of course. Now that things are more tumultuous, so let's talk about that. And well, what what makes active management work is when it when it matters which boat you're in. Yep. Um, and we are probably very close to a point where what boat you're in really does matter. Now, what boat you're in matters a lot. Under situations of crisis, um, everybody looks good when everything's going up. Uh, what looks good when stuff's going up and down is is an entirely different animal. Uh, when we select stocks, one of the things that uh, we like to tell people is is that we like to pick stocks that behave like tennis balls and not tomatoes. It doesn't mean that the stocks we own don't go down in a crisis. They 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 do. But they tend to rebound really fast because they're they're really good companies, um, and that's what a good active manager should do. Now, sadly, what what's occurred over the past forty years is that a lot of active managers have just simply given up and become closet indexers, and so they were charging active fees for uh, actually behaving like an index fund. And I have to say, over the last five years or so, a lot of that. Uh, has been sniffed out, and so you've seen this 
large shift out of active into passive management. But from our perspective, those were managers that probably were pseudo-active anyway. Um, but as as the world changes, uh, as as we start to see uh, capital become disadvantaged uh, to labor, which I, I think, which is one of the things that does sometimes happen after pandemics, right? Is that we you're you're you really want to going to be an active management because with passive management you could end up with an index fund that's flat for years uh, if it if it does that well. Um, so it, it, it does, it really circles back to that whole optimization. Don't assume the conditions that you're in will last forever. Uh, there's nothing wrong with making, making a stand, but know what you're standing on. So you're saying there's lacked that, you're, you're looking at a tumultuous situation where active management is critical and you have less active managers out there versus passive opportunities and therefore I smell an, maybe could there be an opportunity for really well run portfolios on the active side sounds like it well well it, it, there is uh, one of the things that uh, does have to occur though and gets back to this whole narrative argument that um, it's going to take a while to overcome that active versus passive because mm-hmm. the passive the passive narrative has has pretty much won out uh, more people believe in that than, than believe in active, and um, it, it, and it's especially. And I would suspect that if you polled um, people, that the younger they are, the the more uh, that they assume that passive is the best way to invest, because frankly, mm-hmm. their whole life it has been. Yep. Um, but if if the world changes, and I think we make a, a fairly strong case that, hey, here's a, kind of a way to think about it. Bernie Sanders never didn't win the nomination in 16. He didn't win in 20. But the fact that a avowed socialist actually was in the running and was the last to the last person standing in the last two election cycles tells you that there is a, a strong desire for change. And um, that change is not going to favor passive investing. Interesting. So along the lines, we were talking really about opportunities a few minutes ago. Again, in this backdrop, where do you see opportunities? Well, um, you're, you're probably go- one of the areas that we do like a lot is is, is gold. Because we do think that there is going to be widespread currency debasement, um, and and this isn't a gold bug type of thing. But in our asset allocation portfolios, we've been adding gold now for over a year, and doing that in part to protect the portfolios, but also looking out longer term and saying that um, everybody can't have a weak currency, but everybody wants one. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation that we're in, in some respects, is going to look similar to to what we saw in the 1930s in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a retreat from globalization, and um, so that is one uh, area that that we have have moved in terms of asset allocation. Another thing that we've done in our fixed income portfolios is that we have. We've created bond ladders. Uh, for your listeners that may not be familiar, a bond ladder is a calendar of, of uh, allocations that go from the short term to the long term. And uh, it, it's a mechanical process. Uh, when the one-year uh, uh, allocation expires in a year, you simply go out and buy the eighth or tenth year um, and you just keep doing the process. In a steadily rising rate environment, uh, bond laddering is really effective. And we may be a little early on that, but when the Fed has decided to put assets that can actually default in its balance sheet, um, you know, the idea that uh, you, you, you could see steadily rising rates over time uh, Probably makes some sense. So, those are those are two things that we have done. In terms of equities, we are always looking for 
you know, the, the great companies trading at discounts. And so when, when we get events like this, I can tell you our, our equity analysts are, are working from home, but uh, working late into the night, um, looking at, at companies that they've been pining for for a long time, now finding them at, at price levels that uh, are suddenly attractive. So um, that's that's kind of the, the two macro areas and one micro area that, that we are uh, we are looking at. So what you're saying is the storm clouds could be raining gold? For a value investor, yeah, gold gold's very interesting here. Yeah, yeah, I see. It's good. Um, so, what do you want to talk about? What what what's in the uh, annals of your mind that we haven't covered and that maybe you know not a lot of people are looking at? What's 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 brewing in Bill O'Grady's mind that we'd love to that love to, to shed light on? Well, we're we're trying to look at what the world looks like uh, without a hedgeman. Um, there's a book I'd recommend. It's been out for quite a while, but it's called The G-Zero World. Um, it's written by a guy named Ian Bremmer. And um, uh, we we think the U.S. is who has been the global superpower since 1945 is going to be the first superpower that is going to uh, walk away from the role without being pushed. Um, Americans are are tired of the role. They're tired of the of bearing the cost of the role, uh, and and they uh, and they just want to move on. And um, that will have significant ramifications for the rest of the world. Uh, you know, the the superpower provides two public goods for the world. Um, it provides global security, so little wars don't turn into big ones, and it provides the reserve currency. Um, and to do that, bear you it puts costs on on the country. So if you're uh, providing security, what you're doing um, is that you're fighting lots of little wars, so they don't turn into big ones. Um, if Britain, for example, had been a, a strongly functioning hedgeman, they would have stepped in to prevent the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand from turning into World War I. Um, and we have stopped lots of little wars that could have potentially turned into big ones. But if we withdraw from the world, that's <laughs> uh, In terms of the reserve currency, uh, if you're providing your currency to the world, that means you have to run persistent trade deficits. And and as you run trade deficits so others can acquire your currency, it puts tremendous strain on your labor markets. And we have seen that numerous industries in the United States lost to, to import competition, which by design is unfair. Uh, and Americans are getting tired of that too. Uh, now the trouble is, is that uh, if a world without a hedgeman is a world that's much more violent, um, and and that that is something we've been watching for a while, uh, but is something that I think a lot of uh, a lot of people don't quite grasp that uh, um, it, it, there is not always a natural progression from one hedgeman to another. That uh, you you end up having um, hedgemans come and hedgemans go. But there are gaps, and uh, in those gap periods, things can get pretty unruly. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And for uh, yeah, we we've been uh, reading your uh, work on that particular subject, and uh, it's a fascinating tectonic shift that we could be seeing. I mean, and if you look at our history, Bill, wouldn't you? Would, is it fair to say that we really didn't want to be the hegemon, and we're we hated? Being under Britain's thumb, we didn't necessarily didn't want to create that opportunity for us to be that. Sort of, would you wouldn't you agree with that, or is there some thought? Oh yeah, no, that's, yeah. It's, a, it's a natural position. Uh, we're a nation of, of yeah. immigrants that right. people who are getting away from all that sort of thing, and um, we we don't face any real threats. Uh, you know, the Otto von Bismarck's famous line about America: "It's surrounded by two weak powers and fish." Um, mm -hmm. And so 
we have told ourselves that we can sit here in our, our splendid isolation and uh, and the rest of the world can just kind of go hang. Um, what we have found is the world eventually finds us. Uh, but that lesson is being lost because the people who decided to take on hegemony uh, are steadily leaving the scene. And uh, the reason those people after World War II decided to take on this role wasn't that they were pining to be the hegemon. It was because they were terrified if they didn't do it that we'd be fighting the Third World War. In fact, one of the lines I, I often give when I give talks is that, you know, imagine that in, we were doing this uh, this speech in, in 1960. And if I told you that by 2020 we would not have fought the Third World War, you probably all would have taken the other side of that trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, with good reason, because the previous uh, 50 years you'd fought two. Yeah. Um, and, and it didn't happen because of uh, the hard work that the United States did. Well, with that all said, what are you optimistic about? Um, I'm, I'm always optimistic about technology. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, there, it, we do amazing things. Uh, we, we figure out amazing stuff. I, when, when I uh, worked at A.G. Edwards for a number of years, Gary Thayer and I would uh, give each other a Christmas present every year. I would give him an almanac, and he would give me an almanac because we would get questions from advisors that needed a you know a, a quick answer to something obscure, and these 1,200-page books were really handy with finding all kinds of little oddball stuff. And I remember when we first started using Google, it's just like, wow, this is this is really amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, you know, for uh, you know someone who's had Google all their lives, they don't give it a second thought, but, yeah. you know, it, it, it used to be a bit of an art to find finding stuff. Um, and uh, I've spent hours uh, transcribing, uh, you know, data into spreadsheets. And, um, you know, the, the things we, we, we can do now are, are, are pretty, pretty fabulous. And uh, obviously they can be used for good or ill, but, uh, um, it, it it is uh, it is a, a remark. Technology does make things better, and uh, uh, it makes things safer. And and uh, you know it. it uh, uh, I mean, um, it, I, I still find it amazing that uh, you can drive a car now and put on the uh, cruise control, and it'll slow down when the car is in front of you. You know that's that's yeah. pretty remarkable. Well, also. You know, just te- technological advances that are coming to bear in in healthcare right here, right now. I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's absolutely amazing. I actually saw a pretty cool thing. Talk about innovation. On the uh, I saw this online. It was uh, I don't know, a golf course, and there's somebody invented because you can't touch the the flag. There's somebody invented a little like hook thing that goes down into the hole. It's like a tray that goes down into the hole. And instead of touching the frame of going down and put your hand in and getting the ball out or moving the flag, you just, you just grab the handle with your club and lift it up and the ball comes out. So America, the sleeping giant, it may be awakening to a whole new, uh, bunch of entrepreneurs and innovation. Who knows? That's, that's it. Yeah. So I'm going to finish up with, uh, what, uh, what are you reading or and or streaming? these days well a, a lot of the reading i do is is uh just keeping up with with the world as it is um, yeah my yeah. my favorite sources uh are uh, the financial times wall street journal uh new york times um i i do get a couple of subscription services strat for and geopolitical futures which i find are really good mm-hmm. um in terms of of Book reading, uh, like I said, I, I'm just about to finish uh, uh, Bob Schiller's uh, uh, Narrative Economics. I've got a, right. another list of books um, I'm teeing up uh, to uh, 
to go through and and on our webpage you'll you'll see those show up as as book reviews uh, uh in addition to the g zero world and another uh, uh another book that uh, uh i would recommend or any of the books by peter zihan uh who uh as I told my my boss Mark Keller, he's writing the books that we should have written. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're really they're they're fun to read. They're easy to read, but but they're absolutely spot on. Um, Can you give us the title? Um, the the one that he's most famous for is called the Accidental Superpower. Okay, yeah, yeah. And yep. uh, it, it pretty much outlines how the United States uh, became the superpower and why it wasn't done by, by plan or, or by goal. And then pretty much the other books he's written are uh, based off of, of that theme. Uh, but, but the ultimate theme is we're, we're withdrawing from the world and, and get ready. Uh, right. And, hmm. uh, um, Podcasts. Um, I I have a couple of dogs, and we go out for walks every day. Yeah, yeah. What kind of dogs? I heard them in the background. What kind of dogs are you? Have? <laughs> That's great. I love it. You know, this is of course happening all over the world yeah. now. You know, but uh, yeah, what do you got? Well, there's just a couple of rescues. One of them. Oh, nice. They're completely different personalities. One of them is a uh, Samoyed Golden Mix. He's an absolutely beautiful dog. Oh, I'm sure. And extremely social. Uh, I mean, if he were a person, he'd be rush chairman. Uh, the other dog is Australian <laughs> cattle dog, which, which is, uh, hates other dogs, ignores pretty much everybody but us. And, uh, the only dog that she'll tolerate is the one she lives with. So it's, I'm not sure how exactly that happened, but you know, you go to these facilities and you see a dog and you feel sorry for it. And yeah. Get home and then you're kind of like, huh. Yeah. Well, that's what we did. The, uh, my daughters and I, and then my, my wife are on the hunt. Apparently adoptions is through the roof. Yeah. Um, so which is, which is, which is great. So I didn't mean to interrupt. So you, uh, podcast, you mentioned. Yeah. There, there's yeah, there's a <laughs> number of them that, that, uh, I mean, we do our own and obviously yep. I, I always plug those. And you do guys, but... you guys do a great job in that, by the way. Oh, thank job. you. Very yeah, much. absolutely. Uh, the the one I my my daily list um, uh, includes uh, Tom Keen's um, Bloomberg Surveillance podcast, which is his radio show. Okay. Um, it's a daily, and it's hard to do a daily. Uh, and and I'd have to say some days are better than others, but it it he gets good guests, and he asks good questions, and uh, he's got a couple of people he works with that that are are really insightful and and they do very good interviews um and again being a daily i i'm very sympathetic uh with them but but i of all the dailies i've listened to it's the one i think is by far the most impressive um Another one that I strongly recommend to people with a, a financial bent um, is called Odd Lots. Uh, it's, it's also another Bloomberg uh, uh, podcast. It's, uh, it's done by uh, uh, Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, and mm. uh, it's a weekly, but they have had some rock star guests uh, over the past six months. Um, cool. They, the people they had on, uh, were doing the best analysis of last September's repo scare, uh, mm -hmm. place really? I've, I've heard. And, uh, uh, if you're not in the industry, um, it's going to come off a little bit wonky and, uh, and, and their podcasts tend to run long. They, they tend to run about 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. But uh, if if you're if you're in the business or you're really interested in it, uh, there's there's no uh, they do they do a really top notch job, and, and it's kind of one of these things that I'm learning as we do podcasts is that they they do evolve over time, and I'd have to say the, the Odd Lots podcast has gotten better over time that that they have have. Uh, they have improved, and, and that's that's something that I, I do like to see. For for general listening, um, 
that I think does a really good job, uh, Planet Money from NPR does a really good job in explaining complex things simply. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that we, our, our clientele is, is mostly retail and, and I've, one of my claims to fame in, in my career has been to take the complex and make it digestible for the average investor. And, uh, I learn lessons from them and how they do it. And, uh, I, I take things from them. Um, and, and so I've, I found that to be, uh, be quite helpful. Um, it, it, it is a muscle that you, it is a muscle that you have to get, you have to exercise yeah. it. And if you do, you get better at it. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then, uh, Council of Foreign Relation does one called the President's Inbox. Uh, it, it's good. I'd have to say, uh, you're getting the establishment view of the world, um, in it. Uh, but I've been a reader of foreign affairs since the early nineties. Uh, hmm. as I tell people, it's a, it's a great magazine. Uh, you read the best people there, but pretty much the last two to three pages of every article are worthless. Mm. Because that's when they go, this is what we should do. Well, yeah, if there were no constraints and, and right. political and obstacles, yeah, of course you would do this, but you can't do that. So, so I'm not, I'm not reading this, but their ability to describe what's going on and is, is very insightful. The other thing they're really good at is book reviews. Mm. Um, so if, if you, you're thinking about getting a book and you're like, well, I wonder uh, if this is worth it. Um, uh, you know, foreign affairs magazines book reviews are probably worth the price of, of uh, admission. But uh, th- those are the the four that that I listen to the most. I do listen to geopolitical. I'm not. I'm sorry. Stratfor's uh, podcasts. Um, I'd have to say they're kind of a mixed bag. Uh, they do a lot of uh, book reviews. Fred Burton, who is the podcast host um he's an old spy and so he likes to have people review spy books they've written and you know, frankly some of them are probably not worth it but they also do uh, some stuff called essential geopolitics where they have like 10 minute uh reports from their various desk officers and um those are really good uh and are short and, and they kind of lay out quickly what the problems are. So that's, that's what I listen to. The dogs get roughly about, uh, about, um, 35 to 40 minutes, uh, a day out, uh, the, the, uh, the Sammy, uh, mix. He, um, uh, he's getting older now. So the, as I always point out to him, my, Miles per minute when I walk him run about 23, and my miles per minute when I walk the cattle dog are about 16. So got it, got uh, it. You know, he wants to sniff and pee and tell everybody right. he's been there. Nice. Where, where are the dogs six these days in terms of stocks? <laughs> yeah, right. Go long, go long, right? I'm imagining. Yeah, yeah. They've got a short life to live. Yeah. yeah, awesome. I actually listened. I'll give you one. You may know about it, but uh, Barry Ritholtz. Um, Yes, I've listened to that job. before. What I have found is that um, Odd Lots kind of does the same thing, and it's it's quicker. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, um, Barry's a good interviewer, but yeah, um, he's, he's, it, yeah. it can get it can get kind of lengthy. And yeah. uh, um, in fact, it's not uncommon they will end up having the same guest sometimes. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's very wonky. You know, it's yeah. very wonky. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, well, Fred, one last question. What, what music do you like? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, over the, I mean, I'm, I'm still a big fan of, of 70s and, and 80s yeah, rock nice. and roll. Nice. Uh, you know, that's kind of what I grew up with, but, uh, and even some 60s. Yeah. But I, I've also got a really, uh, strong bent for, uh, classic country. Um, Oh. My parents uh, were were really into uh, country music from about the mid fifties uh, for the rest of their lives. Although right. um, they they died pretty young, so it didn't go very long. Uh, sorry but, about that. 
but I have a uh, my I have a picture of my mother uh, meeting George Jones um, nice. after a concert. Gentleman George Jones. Uh, that's right. And, yeah. Uh, I you know when when uh, public television had their piece on country music, uh, you know my wife was like, "You've heard of those people?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I know all these guys." Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. So, and, and so I assume you're a Cash guy, Johnny Cash guy. Johnny Cash, yeah. uh, big fan of Johnny Cash's work, um, a huge fan of Patsy Cline. Um, yeah. Great voice. I, I don't, I don't think anybody uh, can hit it quite like she could. No. Yeah. You know, but but uh, that whole era. Um, yeah. You know, I I, uh, I have a real soft spot for, and uh, so Great. you know, every once in a while, I'll uh, when I. I Either use Pandora or, or uh, one of the streaming services. You know, I'll set up my uh, my station for the the old one. I mean, I we have satellite uh, radio, and that's one of the things I'll listen to a lot uh, when I'm working. Is uh, is just the uh, Willie's Roadhouse. Um, yep. station. Yeah, I, I caught him and his kid and their band at uh, here in Durham. Five years ago now, uh, and it was amazing because Willie, you know, writes those two to three minute songs, and and they just jumped there. And I think they probably what an hour and a half they must have played fifty songs. I mean, it was just, it's just a totally different way of going at it, and uh, and there's no breaks in between. They just go at it. Have you uh, taken the seventeen and a half minutes and listened to um, Dylan's new uh, uh, new song? Um, no, I haven't. Oh, it's it's uh, it's yeah. It's just interesting timing for him to, for, for the uh, for the gentleman to come out with something. So, and I think he just released something else. So, uh, worth a listen for sure. Well, Bill, I really want to thank you for joining us here at uh, Overall Financial Meet the Masters. We appreciate it, and um, I know you're busy, and and we'll continue reading your commentary. And uh, and thank you so much for the time. We appreciate it. Very good. Thanks for having awesome. me. Awesome. Yes, of course. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.